All right, here we are, out for a drive on a Sunday night. Thanks for driving, man. It's been a long road trip. Yeah, no problem. I got your back, man. I love to drive. You should, uh, should probably get home, huh? Well, I was thinking maybe we would uh, hit a service tonight. On a Sunday night? Yeah, you know, like, we have one campus that has a Sunday night service. That's right, it's Blaine. Blaine. Let's go. Let's go to Blaine. And there's Mike Emmert, campus pastor. How you doing, Mike? Hey, Mike. Good Great to see you. To see you. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Yeah. So Sunday night service, the only campus that yeah. does it. Why are you doing it? Overflow, needed some more seating, but also this gives another opportunity for people to come that I don't think ever could attend before, right. just because that's, of timing. That's wow. great. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, we'd love to get to know the story a little bit more. Do you yeah. mind if we talk to some folks That'd about why they, they come? It. That'd be great. Let's Thanks, go. Thanks. Why do you go to Sunday nights at Blaine? I love the atmosphere. It's nice because if you go to the cabin, you can come at night. You don't have to miss the service just because you decided that you wanted to do something during the weekend, especially all the people that work during the week. They um, only get weekends off, so it's nice to be able to come at night. When they announced the new service on Sunday nights, we were just so excited that we were expanding here at Blaine and we were going to try something new and that we could be a part of that and reaching people for Christ in a different and new way at Eagle Brook. Everyone's just happy to be here and we just have a blast together. I want you to welcome to Blaine, Mike and Mike. So by the fall of 2010, God opened up our doors again. Now something's really happening in Blaine. <laughs> that was really awesome. That was so cool, man. Yeah. I love the when you were like, eh. I know, and you were all like, eh. Yeah. So what do you like about Sunday night at Blaine? Uh, my favorite part is that I get to help keep the campus open for roughly about 450 people. I work Sunday morning, so it's just perfect option to come on Sunday nights. Now I'm getting my friends from work to join me. And is it easier for them to come? Is it easier to make that invite? It is. It's a lot easier because they're like, oh, I don't want to go to church. Sunday morning's too hard. I'm like, well, we've got a 6 o'clock service, so join me at 6 o'clock. The reason I like the 6 o'clock service so much is it really doesn't let you have an excuse to miss church. When you've got all the options, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, you can always fit into your schedule. So that's one of the things that's been working for us. I love not getting up Sunday mornings. Perfect. So this is a reason to sleep in. Yes. I like the uh, laid back atmosphere. It's like the weekend's over and we're kind of just getting jazzed for the, the week ahead. All right, Sunday night at Blaine. That was fun. It was really fun. Met great some great people. people. We got up on stage, did a little this, did a little that. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. good. Next week, we're going to be at Woodbury. And in the meantime, we join up with senior pastor Bob Merritt at Orlando Lakes campus as he continues the Unstoppable Message Series. Well, welcome everybody at all of our campuses meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. I want to welcome those of you also who are watching online. Glad you can join us. Whenever you can join us, it's always great to have you with us. And I want to congratulate those of you who are high school students or middle school students who are here at this service, 9 o'clock, daylight savings times. You will go far in this world, I predict. So congratulations if you're a student here today and you got here at this service. Way to go. Proud of you. Uh, maybe your parents will do something great for you this afternoon. I don't know. But last weekend, sorry about that, parents, but last weekend was really the highlight of the year. It truly was. Uh, it reminded me of Acts 2 when people were coming to faith and being baptized every single day. Last weekend, the number of people who were baptized at our six campuses was 1,231 people. Can you believe that? 1,231 people is worth applauding. You know, folks, never in my lifetime did I ever believe or think that I would witness something like this. Honestly, I never did. 
Never thought this would happen. And I'm so proud of each one of you who took that bold step of obedience last weekend and were baptized. One person wrote an email to us and said, if I, I've never been more filled after a church service in my life. My wife and I sat in the auditorium at Coon Rapids High School and watched person after person get baptized. He said, each time someone emerged from the water, more tears came. It was unlike anything we've ever seen in our life. Campus pastor Aaron Damianovich said, we got to experience something that very few people in our country, in our world, or in all of history got to experience, the baptism of over 1,200 people in one weekend. And that's really an accurate statement that we got to witness something very unusual last weekend. And so my prayer this past week has been that God will bless those of you who were baptized, that God will protect you in your new step of faith, in your new step of obedience. Uh, clearly, the unmistakable hand of God is on this church. I'm just, uh, I, I can't get over it. God's hand is on us, so uh, way to go, everyone, and praise God for what he did last week. Today, we continue our series in Acts, and things are really heating up in the early church because thousands of people are responding to Peter and John's message that Jesus broke the curse of sin and death when he rose again from the grave. And new life is available to everyone who puts their faith in him. 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized in one day back in Acts chapter 2. Then 10,000 more people a few days later. But not everybody was happy with this Jesus movement. Peter and John were threatened and imprisoned more than once. Stephen, one of the first believers, was stoned to death right there in Jerusalem by Jewish, Jewish authorities. In fact, the day Stephen was martyred, it says in Acts chapter 8, that Saul, who was one of the religious leaders of that time, Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death, and that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So Christianity is spreading throughout the region, but Jewish leaders like Saul did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought this was a dangerous heresy, and so they were persecuting Christians, trying to put an end to this movement of Jesus. And friends, if there was ever a person that you would say, there is no way that person could be changed, that person could never be converted from one faith to another, it would be this man Saul. No one would ever expect in a million years for this man to become a Christian. I just want to pause here and ask a question. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anyone who you would say there is no way that person would ever become a Christian? Maybe it's somebody you work with or go to school with, or maybe you know they're in your family, a parent or a spouse or even a son or daughter, and you would say there is no way on earth that that person would ever become a Christian. You know anybody like that? Several years ago, I told a story about a guy named Jim Gannon. Jim and his wife, Jeannie, were staying, staying at the Black Forest Inn just a few doors down from my wife and me in the Black Hills of South Dakota. When I first saw Jim, he had dismounted his Harley-Davidson motorcycle and was strolling up toward the deck where I, where I was reading a book uh, called Created to Be God's Friend by Henry Blackaby. Jim was wearing a red bandana, blue jeans that were kind of ripped, a ponytail, long gray, uh, gray beard. He leaned back in the chair next to me on the deck, lifted his boots onto the footrest. He lit a cigarette, nodded my way, and said, how you doing? I quickly covered the 
uh, title of my book uh, kind of hid what I was reading because I thought, if this guy finds out I'm a pastor, he'll never speak to me. He'll just flip out. I said, are you a part of the motorcycle rally? He said, yeah, me and the wife come out to Sturgis every single year. I said, really? I said, what's the attraction? He said, well, ride around, look at the chrome. He said, do you ride? I said, I used to ride a Suzuki 185. And he just laughed at me like, you know, what are you talking about? But he took a long drag on his Marlboro and kind of looked out over the hills. But the next morning, I sat next to him at our breakfast table and I said, Jim, would you tell me your story? He said, well, do you have an hour? I said, well, I'm in South Dakota. I've got all day long. So he said, I'm 52 years old. He said, but on September 9th, 1980, that was when my new life began. He said, I came out of Vietnam. I was a heavy drinker. I was addicted to drugs, and it was killing me. It was killing my family. I'd be driving home from work. It's a 25-mile drive, and I had to fight the urge to stop at the bars. He said, he'd pass bar after bar after bar, but then the last bar, I would pull in and start drinking, and my, tears would fill, my eyes would fill up with tears. He said, sometimes, Bob, you wake up in life, and you don't know where you've been, and you don't know where you're going. He said, I pulled over in a driving rain one night, and I had no idea where I was. I lived in Atlanta, but I wound up in a jail in Macon, Georgia with a DWI, and I didn't know how I got there. He said, in the meantime, my wife Jeannie was moving on with her life. She had kicked me out of the house. I was running out of sick leave from work, but I couldn't stop myself from drinking. He said, I was on a drunk that was impossible for me to shake, which brings me to September 9th, 1980. He said, that night, I went to the Duck's Breath Saloon. I wrote that down, Duck's Breast Saloon. He said, where I had my final drunk, because that was the day I checked myself into the hospital. And then Jim said words to me that just blew me away. He said, that day, I stepped onto the rubber pad that opens the automatic doors of the hospital, and he said, that was the moment. He said, I didn't say God or Jesus, but that was the moment I gave my life to him. He said, after 10 days of treatment, though, the hospital said I'd never make it that I was a hopeless case. Then Jim leaned across the table at that breakfast meeting that I had with him that morning. He looked me in the eye and he said, rehab and AA can help you get free from alcohol. But what really did it for me was Jesus. I almost fell off my chair. Without him, he said, I don't care. You can become free of alcohol, but you'll never have the peace, joy, and strength that only Jesus Christ can bring you. And I wanted to hug him. Now, obviously, he wasn't perfect, still had some habits he was working on. But Jim Gannon's been free from alcohol and has been a Christ follower for nearly 30 years. And I took a photograph of him that day, and there he is. I mean, just in all his glory and his wife on the back. But Jim Gannon was so far from Jesus, you would never expect that he'd ever become a Christian that he'd be reached by the love and power of Christ. In the same way, you would never expect that this man, Saul, could be reached by the power and love of Christ. He was so far from Christ that chapter 9 says Saul tried to destroy the church and drag Christians off to prison. I'm telling you, if God can change a man like Saul and Jim Gannon, God can change you. And God can change me. And God can change anybody on this planet. Don't give up on people, folks. Keep praying for that impossible person that you know in your life. If God can change Saul, he can change anybody. One day, Saul was on his way to the city of Damascus. He was going to be searching for Christians 
to drag out of their homes and put them in prison and persecute the church. And it says on the way to Damascus, God intervened in a miraculous way. God doesn't often do this. But God had a special mission for Paul or for Saul. And it says in Acts chapter 9, a brilliant light from heaven suddenly beamed down on Saul. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? The voice replied, I am Jesus. This is called a theophany. It's a, it's a voice that Jesus spoke through a vision. It, it's very unusual. It doesn't happen very often. It's never happened to me. But the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. So this was the beginning of Paul's conversion, the beginning of his transformation from a Jesus denier to a Jesus follower. And what I want to do today is show you four characteristics of a true conversion experience, of a transformation experience, four characteristics And we want to continue now in verse 8. And this passage is a little lengthy, but hang with me. I know it's early, but hang with me. This is so good. As Saul stood up, he found that he was blind. It's a crisis for him. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained blind for three days. There was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, Ananias, go to the house of Judas, and when you arrive, ask for Saul. He's praying to me right now. And I've told him in a vision that a man is coming to lay hands on him so that he can see again. Ananias said, but Lord, I've heard about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And I don't want it to happen to me. And we hear that he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest every believer in Damascus. But the Lord said to Ananias, go and do what I say. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles as well as to the people of Israel. I mean, this is unbelievable. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may get your sight back and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Immediately he started preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he indeed is the Son of God. I mean, you you can't believe what happened to me. All who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the same guy who persecuted Jesus' followers with such devastation in Jerusalem? But Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was the Messiah. But after a while, the Jewish authorities decided to kill him. (laughs) Now, a lot's going on here in this text, but I see four characteristics of Saul's conversion that changed his life. And by the way, Saul's conversion in Acts is a big reason why you and I are all here today worshiping Jesus Christ. This man, Saul, later became Paul, dominated the rest of Acts, and he's, on a personal note, Paul is my personal hero in all of Scripture. I mean, Peter is close, David's a third, but Paul is my personal hero. Of course, Jesus is the top hero, but Paul is right there. I mean, he is so relentless. He's unstoppable in telling others about his faith. If you haven't had a chance to read Acts, just read Acts and look at this man, Paul, who became a Christian. But I see four characteristics of a a genuine conversion, and the first one is this. Often, there's a crisis 
that gets your attention. Now, it, it doesn't always happen this way. Sometimes conversions are very gradual and very quiet. In my case, there wasn't a crisis. I was a young boy, and I just, I didn't even really, couldn't identify the exact moment that I put my trust in Christ. But, but for some people, there's a crisis that comes along. And God used a crisis in Saul's life, blindness, to get his attention. A crisis that Paul couldn't fix. It was out of the blue. And again, I just want to raise a question. Have you ever been hit by something that was out of the blue and out of your control? Friends, sometimes God will use a crisis in your life to change something in you, to get your attention, to say, I want you to change in this area, and I'm going to use this crisis. I'm, I'm, not, gonna, I'm not the cause of the crisis necessary, God would say. But I want to use this crisis to change something, maybe to deepen your dependence on me, maybe to strengthen your prayer life. Nothing like a crisis to get us to pray more. Maybe it's to soften our hearts toward God or toward others. Maybe it's to change our priorities, and God wants to just bring a crisis along to say, look, your priorities are out of whack, and I'm going to use this to get your attention. A few months ago, one of our pastors, Byron Emmert, uh, woke up virtually blind in one eye, just overnight. The doctor said he'd had a stroke overnight. I asked Byron about it, what it was like, and he said, when you can see and then you can't, it shocks you. He said, it totally grabs your attention. Think of it. You go to bed, you can see perfectly, you wake up and you're blind in one eye. It shocks you. He said, then it, my shock turned into grieving because it was such a loss to me. But after grieving, I started praying, okay, God, if this is what you have for me, I'm going to start to trust you fully. Help me adapt to my new kind of life. Byron said, God offered me the opportunity to change from depending less on myself to totally depending on him and trusting him more deeply than ever. He said, it brought me so much closer to God and closer to my wife, Linda, that if I knew that I could get my sight back but I'd have to give all that up, I wouldn't even trade it. I couldn't believe he said that. But Byron's a new and different man because of a crisis he couldn't fix. Friends, sometimes God will bring a crisis or allow a crisis to come into your life because he wants to change something in us. And in Paul's case, this crisis of blindness led him to his conversion to becoming a Christ follower. Second characteristic, there's a moment of surrender. There's this moment where you say, God... I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to open my life to you. When Saul got knocked to the ground and blinded, he said, who are you, Lord? The Greek word for Lord is kurios. And it's a term of surrender. It's a term of submission. Kurios, Lord. When Jim Gannon stepped on the rubber pad at the hospital, he said, I didn't say God or Jesus, but that was the moment I opened my life to him. That was Jim's moment of surrender. Friends, it's not just a decision or a quick prayer. You know, I think I'll trust Christ today and get on with my life. I mean, that may be the moment of salvation. But true conversion, I believe, is when you surrender your life to Christ. And you invite him to be Lord over every part of your life, including your time and your money, and your work, and your relationships. It's inviting Jesus Christ to be the supreme authority in every area of your life. Remember what Jesus said? He said, take up your cross daily 
surrender daily. There's a sacrifice that you need to commit to in following Christ daily and follow me. So there's this initial moment of surrender when you trust Jesus as your Savior and your sins are forgiven, but there's also the need to daily surrender to him. Honestly, this is something I need to do every single day. Lord Jesus, I I submit to you. Lead me today. You know, determine and drive my thoughts and my behaviors and my speech. If I don't do that every single day, ask God to lead and control me, I make a mess of myself. I begin to do life my way instead of his way, and it's just a mess. Not too long ago, my son and I uh, were in an extreme situation that required us to fully surrender to a couple of hunting guides or not make it out alive. We were hunting some mountain area, and before we set out on this hunt, there was a vigorous debate about whether we should even try to climb this mountain and pursue what we were after. But our two guides, their names were Sean and Digby, they packed a satellite phone, and they packed a, an emergency beacon that a search team could locate us if something bad happened. We left base camp at noon. I have a, I have a photograph of this, and we're making our way up, and we're going to try to get up to where the snow is, where we think we want to hunt. And we left at noon. By 4 that evening, we had climbed 3,000 feet, but we still had at least two hours to go to get to the top of where we wanted to be, which meant that we would... We would reach the top at 6 o'clock in the evening. That meant that we had six hours of descent. We wouldn't get out until midnight, well after dark. It was a big concern of ours. Six hours up, six hours down. In fact, uh, this is where we are on a, on a kind of a cliff ledge, and that black or that red uh, square is where we started from. Took us four hours to get to here, another two hours up to the top. But we decided to make that two-hour climb to the top. Why, you might ask? Because I'm a little nuts (laughs) when it comes to hunting. Now, some of you are nuts about cars or shopping or collecting, you know, stupid things. This is my area of nuttiness. I just confess that some of you know about this. But we made this climb. We had an amazing hunt, but exhausted and beaten and battered. I didn't know if I could make it back. And I'm getting just a little older. I'm still not very but I'm getting a little older. I didn't know if I could make it, especially in the dark, descending this mountain and, and boulder fields and cliffs in the dark. My legs were cramping. My son David's head was getting lightheaded. About 10 times I asked our guide, Sean, I said, are we okay? Are we going to make it? David said he was so defeated and discouraged that he, he just wanted to give up and cry. And I'm telling you, in a situation like that, your only hope is to fully submit to the knowledge and strength of your guide. Coming off that mountain, I was glued to Sean's back and I was following his headlamp. We fell and we tumbled numerous times down that mountain, but we followed every directive our guide gave because we were powerless to get out without him. And that's why the Bible urges every one of us to surrender daily to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is our supreme guide. He knows the way. He does. And when we follow him, he will lead us to outcomes and adventures that we'd never have without him. Friends, he will supply your needs if you surrender to him. He will calm your fears if you daily 
submit to him. He will lead you home. He'll lead you through life. Without going into more detail, Sean made it possible for my son and me to have a father-son memory that we will take to our graves. And it's because we surrendered to our guide. And Jesus promises the same. But what does surrendering to Jesus look like practically? Just let me mention this. The very act of coming to worship is an act of surrender like you're all doing today on daylight saving time. That very act is an act of surrender. And you're saying, God, I need to be in church, and I want to hear from you, and I want to be in touch with you. And so that's an act of surrender. Whenever you pray, that's an act of surrender. You're saying, God, I need to open my heart to you, and I need you. I need to be in communication to you. Giving some of your money is definitely an act of surrender. It's, it's releasing some of your resources to God's purposes. Serving, giving some of your time is certainly an act of surrender. Whenever you extend grace and forgiveness to somebody who has wronged you, which is a very difficult thing to do, that's a sacrifice. That's an act of surrender. Some people you know, are afraid to surrender their time, money, work, and relationships to Jesus because they think he's going to take everything away. But actually, Jesus gives you so much more in return when you follow him and submit to him every part of your life. But conversions have this moment of surrender when you say, Jesus, I can't do life alone. I want to invite you to lead me, and I'm going to follow all along the way. Third characteristic of a conversion, I'm just going to mention this one. Conversions come with a cost. Oftentimes, they come with a cost. Saul's preaching, it says in Acts 9, became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was the Messiah. But after a while, the Jewish authorities decided to kill him. Again, Paul has this undeniable uh, conversion to faith in Jesus, and the first thing that happens is people want to kill him. You know, he surrenders to Christ. He gets baptized like many of you did last weekend. He's doing everything right. And the first thing that happens is people want to kill him. That's because conversions often come with a cost. So if you've had a genuine conversion experience to follow Jesus Christ in faith, you can expect that certain people will criticize you for that. Certain people will oppose you. Certain people may even reject you, reject you, might even be a family member or a close friend who just doesn't get it. Most people in America are usually nice about that, but if non-Christians at your work or school find out that you've become a follower of Christ, at the very least, you're going to be left out of certain situations. You're going to be excluded. People will look at you as being a little bit naive, maybe even a little weak, like you have a crutch. I don't know about you, but I am weak, and I do need Jesus, and I do need God in my life, and I'm not ashamed of that, but when you have a conversion experience, some people will oppose you and make light of that, and in some places in this world, you can expect persecution, even today in our world. Christians are being persecuted around the globe. Now, the good news is that when your faith begins to cost you something, that's a sign that you've had a genuine experience with Christ. Final characteristic of a conversion is that 
They produce an awareness of sin. It really does. If sin doesn't bother you, that should bother you. Because conversions produce an awareness of sin. When, when Saul was blinded, he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus spoke and said to him, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And that was the moment that Paul became aware of his sin. Saul never knew how deep his sin was until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And by the way, the closer you get to Jesus, the more aware you become of your sin. Did you know that? The closer you get to Jesus, the more aware of your sin that you become. My favorite New Testament book in the Bible is Romans. Saul is the author of Romans, later became Paul. He's the author. He wrote it 20 years after this conversion experience. During that 20-year period, Paul planted dozens of churches. He led thousands of people to Christ. He wrote several books of the Bible, Paul did. He was the main reason Christianity spread across the globe. But I want you to see what this amazing man of faith, this author of Scripture, says about himself in Romans 7, says about his sin. This is after his conversion, after he's been a Christian for 20-some years. He says, I don't understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very things that I hate. I know perfectly well that what I am doing is wrong, but I can't help myself, because it's sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. He says, bring that back because I don't have that memorized, please. Thank you, very good. He says, it seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. This could be my life verse. When I want to do what's right, I still do what's wrong. He says, what a wretched man. What a miserable person I am sometimes. He says, who will rescue me from this life that's dominated by sin? And just kind of an exhaustion, he says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now that ought to encourage all of us because this amazing Christian man who surrendered everything to Christ is admitting that he still struggles with sin. And friends, if, if Saul later became Paul, if he struggled with sin, we're going to struggle with sin as Christians as well. If you've ever said to yourself, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep making the same mistakes? Why can't I control my anger or what I say? Why do I keep saying and doing things that I hate? You're in good company. Join the crowd. I do the same things. The question is, are we increasingly aware of our sin? Of course we're going to blow it sometimes. Of course we're going to be selfish sometimes. Of course we're going to say things we regret and yell at the kids when they drive us crazy. That's because we're human. We're still sinners. But if you've had a genuine conversion to Christ, you will be increasingly aware of your sin and motivated to change. For your sake and those around you. Recently, I was <coughs> coming through an airport security with my backpack, and along with some clothing, books, and toiletries, I had an empty bullet casing 
tucked in a side pocket that I'd kind of forgotten about. You know who really, really doesn't like empty bullet casings? Homeland Security. I came through security, and they immediately made me aware of my sin. Three officers stared at the x-ray. They pointed at the 300 caliber casing and said, what's that? And I said, this honestly was what I said. I said, oops. I said, I forgot about that. They were not smiling at all. They made me step aside. They did the magic wand thing up and down my body, full body pat down, emptied my backpack, all but handcuffed me, and then they just kind of looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And I wanted to say what's wrong with me is that I'm still a sinner. And I do things wrong. Even though I'm a Christian, I still sin and say and do things that are wrong. The question is, am I increasingly aware of it? Because that's what happens when you've had a genuine conversion. You still sin, but you're more aware of it and more determined to overcome it. One thing's for sure, I will never bring an empty bullet casing through security again. Why? Because I've had a conversion experience about that, and I don't want to go through that again. So four characteristics of a genuine conversion. Oftentimes it starts with a crisis. Not always. But oftentimes God uses a crisis to get our attention. There's a moment of surrender where you say, Jesus, I need you. I'm going to trust you. It often comes with a cost. And a lot of people don't understand and maybe even make light of it and that it makes you more aware of your sin. So I just want to ask, has that happened for you? My guess is that for most of, it, most of you it has. You've had a conversion experience. You still sin, but Jesus is in your life. But I want to ask another question. Is there an area in your life that maybe you're guarding and you're keeping away from Jesus and you're saying, Jesus, I give you this part of my life, but not this. I'm not going to surrender control of my money. No way. I can't trust you that much. I'm not going to surrender control of my priorities. Is there an area in your life that you need to say, Jesus, all of it is yours. I'm going to trust you. If you haven't had a conversion experience, we have people every single week who gather at the front of our campuses down front and they wait for people who need prayer. And if you haven't had an experience with Christ, this could be your day. And so we invite any of you to get on a new path. Come Stay after service. Uh, seek out one of these folks who will pray for you. And you can start anew today. But at all campuses, let's stand for closing prayer. Be on our way. <clears throat> Lord God, thanks for your tender mercy. Thank you for getting hold of this man, Saul. God, one day we'll be able to meet him, ask him what that moment was like, 
Ask him what it was like to be threatened and punished for his faith. But Lord, I just thank you for every person standing here who's put their trust in you. My guess is most all of us have. I thank you for the devotion to come to worship on, a, on an early morning like this that these folks have demonstrated today. I pray that you will bless them for that act of surrender. God, we need you to lead us through every day. I pray that we will fix our eyes on you as our supreme guide, as the one who wants to lead us and take care of us all the way. We put our trust in you once again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day, everybody.